This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. What's up, everybody, and welcome to MLB Morning Coffee. This is our 10 Thursday thoughts. Why Thursday? Well, because I didn't do it on a Tuesday. We are a production of the Athletes Unfiltered Podcast Network, and we are recording at the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. It has been a very wild week in the world of baseball for a multitude of different reasons, and I think that at this point, six weeks into the season, or about seven weeks now, I would say, we have some definitive answers as to who's good, who's not, what the storylines are going to be, and what we can more than likely ignore. There are some things that are out there that are well worth paying attention to, but there are also a few things that are just absolute garbage, and we start off with one of those things, and that is Tony La Russa, the gatekeeper of the unwritten rules of baseball. This is a story that may be old news by the time you listen to this show, but as long as Tony La Russa is the manager of the Chicago White Sox, we are going to continue to see stories of him putting his foot up his own behind. Let's take you back to Monday night, White Sox and Twins. Top of the ninth inning, White Sox are up 15-4. Williams Astudio is on the mound, and he is squaring up with your mean Mercedes. The count is 3-0, and Astudio delivers a 47-mile-per-hour EFIS pitch to Mercedes. Now, apparently, Tony La Russa had given the take sign to Mercedes, but Yermin swung away and hit a home run to dead-away center field. The White Sox won the game 16-4, but then after the game, Tony La Russa decided that he was going to throw his own player, Yermin Mercedes, under the bus by effectively saying that it was disrespectful and unsportsmanlike for him to take a swing in a 3-0 count. And the reason why that is significant is that there is an unwritten rule in baseball, and unwritten rules are stupid. We'll get into that in a little bit here on our first thought. But there's an unwritten rule in baseball that you don't swing 3-0 when a position player is on the mound, or you don't really even swing 3-0 in a game that's a blowout but Mercedes decided he was going to swing anyway. He hits the home run, and after the game, and I'm going to paraphrase here, Tony La Russa calls him clueless, says that he should not have swung 3-0, that he ignored the take sign, and that it was poor sportsmanship and disrespectful. La Russa also said that there will be consequences for his actions. However, the consequences weren't playing time because Mercedes was in the lineup on Tuesday and on Wednesday. So we go to Tuesday, and Tony La Russa is continuing to stand his ground on this. Meanwhile, other players are coming out and defending your mean Mercedes, saying that if a position player gets put on the mound in any situation, any unwritten rule, any rule period, goes out the window. When you put a position player on the mound, unless it's like the 15th inning of a game where you've already used 10 pitchers, you're throwing in the white flag. You are giving up. And so in the 7th inning, your mean Mercedes is at the plate 
and Tyler Duffy of the Minnesota Twins throws behind him. The umpires come together. They throw Duffy out of the ball game. After the game, in which the Twins actually won 5-4 on a walk-off, Larusa comes out and says that he had no problem with the way the Twins handled the situation. So get this straight. He was fine with the opposing team throwing at his player because it was more important to Tony LaRussa to be the gatekeeper of the unwritten rules of baseball and of the old guard of baseball than it was to protect his own player. A player who, by the way, is largely responsible for your success in the first six weeks of the season. Your mean Mercedes has been one of the top five hitters in all of baseball through the first six weeks of the season, and one of the reasons why your team has the best record in the AL Central and one of the best records in the American League. So Tony LaRussa then comes out Wednesday after Lance Lynn, the White Sox starting pitcher on Tuesday, defends your mean Mercedes. He is asked about Lynn's comments, and LaRussa says, Lance has a locker, I have an office. Also, by the way, LaRussa also said that he would spank your mean Mercedes if he could, jokingly. And that, quite frankly, is just gross. To talk about spanking somebody is absolutely gross. Now, you have a lot of things going on on social media where Tim Anderson is putting out cryptic tweets and your mean Mercedes is responding, yes, yes, bro, and Tim Anderson commented on an Instagram post and your mean Mercedes commented because everybody in that clubhouse with the exception of Tony La Russa, has your mean Mercedes back here. Lucas Giolito came out after his start yesterday and said that everybody likes home runs. We're putting this behind us. We're going to move forward. Which may have been also in response to Tony La Russa's pregame media session on Wednesday in which he said that everybody in that clubhouse was in support of what La Russa's stance was on Mercedes swinging 3-0 which quite obviously is not the case. Evan Marshall, one of the guys in your bullpen, is liking tweets that are criticizing and quite frankly clowning Tony LaRussa. If the White Sox had not come back and won the Wednesday game, there may have been a full-on mutiny in that clubhouse because this type of situation is what will turn a clubhouse against a manager. I don't doubt that there are teams that absolutely despise the managers that they play for. But I think at this point, it's quite obvious that Tony LaRussa has no idea how his team actually feels about him. These players are going to win in spite of their manager, not because of their manager. And I want to point out one more thing before I move on to my next thought, and that is from Craig Calcaterra of the Cup of Coffee newsletter. When I saw this tweet... I thought that Craig Calcaterra had gone into a time machine. On October 29th, 2020, which was basically right after LaRussa had gotten hired, Calcaterra tweets, May 25, 2021, Cardinals versus White Sox in Chicago. Just putting that out there as the night LaRussa gives a quote agreeing with the opposing manager that his own player was out of line, that quote, we don't play the game that way, unquote, and quote, I'll have a talk with him. And in his newsletter, he says, I was a week early, but close enough. Craig Calcaterra correctly predicted, or about a week off predicted, what happened with your mean Mercedes and the Minnesota Twins and what LaRusso was going to do about it. 
This was too predictable from the start. And that's why the White Sox are in the position they are now. With their season successfully moving along, even without two of your best players in Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert, but on the precipice of a collapse because of a manager that has no idea how to connect with his players, and a manager that wants to gatekeep a castle that has crumbled to the ground years ago. Before I move on to my next thought, I want to play for you a quote from C.C. Sabathia on his podcast that he does with Ryan Rucco, R2C2, and this is what he has to say about Tony La Russa and being out of touch with the game. Like, Tony La Russa's out of touch with the game because he should not be managing one of the best teams in the American League, period. The fact that Tim Anderson, the, basically the captain of their team, had to go on Instagram and step up for his teammate, like, yeah, the game wasn't over. If you're going to put a fucking position player in there to pitch, Guess what? If he's going to lob shit over the plate, we're going to fucking tee off. Put a 10-run rule up there, cuz. If y'all don't want to see people get embarrassed and you don't want to see position players pitch and people swing on 3-0 counts and all that shit, then make it a 10-run rule so the fucking game will be over and you don't have these stupid-ass unwritten rules. And now you got a rookie that's basically been carrying your fucking team this whole these last fucking first six weeks of the season. This guy's been carrying you. And now you don't have a problem with the Fucking weird ass Minnesota Twins throwing behind your one of your biggest hitters. That's just fucking stupid. It's stupid. Period. I'm sorry. This shit is terrible. He shouldn't be fucking managing that team. And if you're not gonna step up and have your players back, what's the point of being the fucking manager of the White Sox? That was a brutally blunt answer from CC Sabathia. And I hope that for the sake of the Chicago White Sox, that Tony Larusa will wake up and realize that he needs to get more in touch with the modern baseball player. But that's not going to happen because Tony is too much of a narcissist to ever give up on his managerial ideals. We've had no hitters now in back-to-back days. On Tuesday night, Spencer Turnbull, who went 3-17 and for the Detroit Tigers in 2019, no-hit the Seattle Mariners. Then last night, Corey Kluber pitched a no-hitter, the first of his career, and the first for the New York Yankees since David Cohn's perfect game in 1999. Kluber no-hit the Texas Rangers to give Major League Baseball officially their sixth no-hitter of the year, but in all reality, their seventh no-hitter because of the Madison Bumgarner seven-inning no-hitter against the Atlanta Braves. But of the no-hitters that MLB is actually calling as their no-hitters, They have been against only three teams, the Mariners, the Rangers, and the Indians. So you have three teams that have each been no-hit twice this season. Per Sarah Langs of MLB Research, it's the most teams that have been no-hit twice in a season in Major League Baseball history. No team has ever been no-hit three times in the same year, although the Mariners have an opportunity to accomplish that feat as their offense, as of the recording of this show, was hitting a paltry 199. There have also been four no-hitters in the month of May, tied with June 1990 for the most in a calendar month in Major League Baseball history. And the last four no-hitters have all come in the last 15 days, which is tied for the most no-hitters over a 15-day span in Major League Baseball history. There were four no-hitters over a 13-day stretch from April 24th to May 6th 
1917. That was the dead ball era. The most no-hitters in a single season, eight, which happened in 1884. And the most no-hitters in a season in what is defined as the modern era, which is since 1900, seven in 1990, 91, 2012, and 2015. I don't know why I hesitated on the last date. I had the note right in front of me. But the no-hitters continue to pile up in Major League Baseball, and whether it's bad hitting, great pitching, a combination of both, we've gone over this before, Major League Baseball has a serious offense problem, and it's all because of the launch angle revolution and the approach that hitters take at the plate. Now, some will continue to say that Major League Baseball has the best pitching it's ever had. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I think that the combination of the approach and how Major League Baseball organizations are developing their pitchers is what is causing this lack of offense, because pitchers are trained to go for the strikeout. They're not trained to pitch to contact, or at least that's how I feel. That's the way that I look at it, because you see so many guys that are just trying to go all out, throwing 97 and 99 miles an hour, and really not seeing the type of guys that are going to work four to five pitches and paint different parts of the zone and pitch to contact in certain situations. It's all or nothing on both sides, and that's why you're getting such a high fluctuation of offense and pitching with extremes on both ends, both positive and negative, because you still see a lot of home runs. You're seeing offense come in bunches, but then you also see nights where teams just quite simply can't get the bat on the ball. I feel really bad for some minor league teams that are classified as low A. In what was formerly known as the California League, the Visalia Rawhide, the low A of the Arizona Diamondbacks, has a record of 2-12. That's sad, but that's also not the worst record in all of low A baseball. The Kannapolis Intimidators, formerly of the South Atlantic League, have a record of 1-13. Yet they are not the worst team in their own league. That record goes to the Fredericksburg Nationals, who were in their first season as a franchise. It is the franchise that was known as the Potomac Nationals, but they moved a little bit across Virginia and built a new ballpark, so they are considering this their inaugural season. They have started their first season 0-14, and it is believed to be the worst start for a team in their first season ever in the history of minor league baseball. And it is one of the five worst starts in the history of affiliated minor league baseball, with the worst being the first iteration of the Jackson Generals in 1954, who started the season 0-26. They finished the season 1-26 because they won their last game by a forfeit, and then they folded. The Lake Charles Lakers started 0-14 in 1955, and the Leesburg, Florida A's, the only known affiliate of a current Major League Baseball franchise, the Oakland A's, started the 1968 season 0-16, and they hit 16 home runs over the course of 143 games. Well, I don't necessarily feel like the Fredericksburg Nationals are going to end up going 0-26 or going winless the whole season because that's pretty darn hard to do over the course of what is this year 120 games, but it's pretty darn sad and I just feel bad for them. 
Mike Trout is going on the injured list, or rather has already gone on the injured list, with a calf strain. His estimated return to play is six to eight weeks, so at the earliest, he is going to be back by July 1st, at the latest they're hoping, by the All-Star break. Trout was having an amazing season, hitting 333 with a 466 on base percentage, eight home runs, and 18 runs driven in. So his home run numbers are not going to be as high as some previous years, like 2019, where he hit 45 home runs, or 2015, where he hit 41 home runs. But Trout was on pace to have his best season in regards to batting average and his best in regards to on-base percentage. However, it is unfortunate that I have to say that Mike Trout being out won't have a huge effect on the Angels' record. Now, you might be saying, oh, well, that's blasphemy because he's the best player in baseball, and I'm not questioning that. But the Angels are six games under 500, and they are seven games back of first place in the American League West. The Angels are an incomplete team, and they've been an incomplete team since Trout has been in his prime. It's unfortunate because the Angels have another burgeoning superstar in Shohei Otani, who climbed into the Major League Baseball lead in home runs a couple of days ago, while also flashing some nasty stuff on the mound. Otani has a chance to be the American League MVP, and a lot could argue that Trout may have been in consideration for that as well had he been able to stay healthy and not suffer the calf strain. But think about this. Two of your top candidates for Major League Baseball are on a team that's going nowhere. The Los Angeles Angels are sadly irrelevant in every sense of the word. They play outside of Los Angeles, they're in Orange County, where the Dodgers are a team that will contend for a World Series again. They're starting to hit their stride after struggling mightily in the early part of May, and they are at best the third best team in their own division behind the Oakland A's and the Houston Astros, both of whom are over six games ahead of the Angels currently. They got Anthony Rendon back a couple of weeks ago, and now they're without Mike Trout. They're just, quite frankly, not a very good baseball team, and they have not been a very good baseball team during the height of the Mike Trout era. They now have one of the best managers in baseball in Joe Madden, or at least a manager that has had a lot of success over the last 10 years. So why aren't the Angels better? They have to take a serious look at their overall roster construction and realize that it is going to take a lot more than the superstars they have on offense to be able to field a competitive team. The Atlanta Braves have two of the top three home run hitters in baseball in Ronald Acuna Jr. and Freddie Freeman. Yet despite their offense, the Braves are three games under 500, and they are in third place in the National League East. The Braves have had a lot of struggles from their rotation. Charlie Morton has a 4-6 ERA over 45 innings. Max Freed, last year's ace, has a 5-46 ERA. And Drew Smiley, who was acquired from the Giants, has a 5-23 earned run average. This Atlanta Braves pitching staff has been substandard. Their closer, Will Smith, has a 4-5 ERA in 18 innings spanning 20 appearances. That's horrific for a closer. I don't know what it's going to take to get the Atlanta Braves back on track, but I'm really surprised that this team has struggled as much as they have, given that a lot of people thought that they were the perennial challenger to the L.A. Dodgers coming into the season. 
one of the perennial challengers, I should say, outside of the San Diego Padres. People, in my opinion, looked at the National League entering the 2021 season and said, it's a three-horse race between the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Braves. The first two, I believe, will be in it till the end. The Padres are hot, they've won six games in a row, and the Dodgers are only two games back in the division despite having had a woeful stretch in May. They've been very fluctuating, got off to a great start, then they struggled, and now they're playing better baseball. The National League Central, I don't believe there is any team that can actually win a playoff series in that division, save for, say, the St. Louis Cardinals. But the Atlanta Braves were supposed to be the cream of the crop in the National League East, and they have been far from that. I don't know what it's going to take for them to get back on track, but certainly their starting pitching has to be a whole lot better than it's been through six weeks. I really wanted to believe that the Kansas City Royals were going to be the surprise team of Major League Baseball this year. They were in first place in the AL Central for most of the month of April. However, they came crashing down in the month of May, losing 11 straight before winning the first game of a doubleheader against the Chicago White Sox last week. The Royals are a team that's going to be very good two years from now. They have some of the best organizational pitching depth and a bunch of offensive prospects that you will hear about in years to come, including Bobby Witt Jr., the number two overall pick in the 2019 first-year player draft. I think the Royals are on the right track, but it is still going to take some time for them to be considered a consistent competitor in the American League. The White Sox are not going anywhere, but really that's their main competition for the next few years because the Tigers are still a few years behind them and the Indians and Twins are, relatively speaking, trending in the downward direction. The Royals have a potential future ace in Brady Singer, and they also have somebody in Brad Keller that is going to be a consistent big league starter for many years to come. He's already shown that he can produce consistently on the big league stage. Daniel Lynch, one of their top five pitching prospects, had a very rough debut as he did not last the first inning in his start against the Chicago White Sox. Jackson Coar and Alec Marsh are still a little bit away, and Chris Bubich has already seen time in the big leagues with Kansas City. The Royals are on their way, but if their 11-game losing streak is to show us anything, it's that a team has not arrived until they've arrived. The biggest surprise of the 2021 season in the negative direction is the Minnesota Twins. At 14-27, and 27, they are the worst team in all of baseball by record. However, by winning percentage, they are just slightly better than the Colorado Rockies, who are at 15-29. and 29. The Minnesota Twins have been horrendous on the pitching side of things, as they are bottom five in the league in Team ERA at 4.84. Offensively, they are still top 10 in OPS, which is the metric that I feel like everybody talks about when we're referring to team collective offense. But the Twins' bullpen has been horrendous. Alex Colome has not been as advertised. And an argument can be made that the Twins are going to start selling off pretty soon. There are teams in Major League Baseball like the Colorado Rockies, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Baltimore Orioles that are in last place but everybody thought that they were going to be in last place. Nobody thought that the Minnesota Twins were going to be in last place. If anything, people thought the Twins would be the division favorite, either them or the Chicago White Sox, and not a team that's 13 games under 500 six weeks into the season. 
Is it too late for the Twins? Potentially. They're 11 and a half games back in the American League Central, which is the second largest deficit of any last place team in Major League Baseball at the moment. The Rockies are 12 and a half back, but everybody thought that they were going to be a last place team. The Twins have another two months in order to right the ship, but it may be too little too late. It's really difficult to come back from being 13 games under 500 a month and a half into the season. If the Twins can't get back in it in the next six weeks, in my opinion, they should sell off Nelson Cruz to the highest bidder, they should sell off Josh Donaldson to the highest bidder, and potentially give away Miguel Sano if somebody's going to give them the type of asset that he would require in return. The Twins have young talent, and they have players to build around for the future on offense. Guys like Alex Kirilov and Max Kepler are young outfield pieces that will be in Minnesota for years to come. I don't know what they're going to do about Byron Buxton, because while he's having one of the best years of his career, he's hurt and has not shown that he can consistently stay healthy. If the Twins are back in it, I wouldn't be surprised. But if they aren't back in it, it will be one of the more disappointing seasons in modern times for a team that people thought would contend for a division title. You don't necessarily see separation after six weeks, but here's a stat, or rather a figure, that I think is very indicative of where Major League Baseball is going this year. The St. Louis Cardinals' three-and-a-half game lead in the NL Central over the Chicago Cubs is the largest division lead for any first-place team over the second-place team. In the NL West, it's a half-game lead for the Giants over the Padres. In the National League East, it's a one-game lead for the Mets over the Phillies. In the AL West, it's a half-game lead for the A's over the Astros. In the AL Central, it's two-and-a-half games for the White Sox over the Indians. And in the AL East, it's one game for the Red Sox over the Rays. In the American League East, the fourth-place New York Yankees are a game-and-a-half back of first. In the NL Central, the fifth-place Cincinnati Reds are five games back, which is still reasonable. In the NL West, the third-place Dodgers are very much in it. They're two games back of the San Francisco Giants with a series upcoming this weekend in San Francisco. And in the National League East, the Washington Nationals are in last place, yet they are only four games behind the first-place New York Mets. Baseball has a lot of parity right now, and there's a lot of separation that still needs to happen. However, I'm surprised that there are this many teams that are this competitive this early in the season. The divisional races could go in any direction, but right now, I find it awesome that there are so many teams that are still in it six weeks into the season. There are teams that are out of it, I think the Twins are out of it. I think the Rockies are out of it. I think the Tigers are out of it. I should also add in the Arizona Diamondbacks. But other than those teams, it's all fair game across most of the divisions in Major League Baseball. An article came out in the Chicago Tribune earlier today in which Cubs general manager and president of baseball operations Jed Hoyer said that the Cubs more than likely are not going to reach the 85% vaccination threshold. He called it extremely disappointed but added that there's really not much that they can do to force the hand of the players that are not getting vaccinated. I'm really upset with this. I know I've talked about it before, and I know that we've mentioned that there are anti-vaxxers on that team, Eric Sogard and his wife being the main culprits. 
I don't understand what the big issue is here. You put a needle in your arm, you get the vaccine, it hurts for a couple of days, and then you're ready to go again. It's not a big deal. I've been vaccinated. Most of the teams are going to reach the 85% vaccination threshold. You watch a White Sox game, you watch a Giants game, you watch a Tigers game. You see no masks anywhere because they all got to that threshold. Do it for yourself so that you can do it for your fellow teammates. It's not that hard. We shouldn't have to be talking about this on May 20th. Vaccines are readily available. Just do the darn thing already and get it over with. I feel no sympathy for anybody at this point that wants to do their research over the COVID-19 vaccine. It's safe. It's been tested. The FDA has approved it. The CDC recommends it. Just do the damn thing already. Basketball fans will remember the last dance from last summer in which ESPN did a 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan and the 90s era Bulls. Well, that same style of production is going to be coming in 2022, a six-part documentary series on Derek Jeter. I'm not trying to be old man that yells at Cloud, but Derek Jeter is somebody that, quite frankly, is not that interesting. Maybe you enjoy the types of people that he dates and find it interesting that ESPN once put up a graphic of the starting nine of all of his former or current girlfriends. But Derek Jeter gets the hype that he does because he's a New York Yankee. Do we talk about him the same way if he was a career Kansas City Royal? No. Do we talk about him the same way if he played for the Florida Marlins? Hell no. Derek Jeter has over 3,000 career hits, 34-65. Impressive. He's a 310 career hitter, and he had 260 career home runs. Derek Jeter never won an MVP award. Let me repeat, Derek Jeter never won an MVP award. He's a Hall of Famer, he's a 14-time All-Star, he won five World Series and five gold gloves. Michael Jordan is known as the best basketball player or the second best basketball player of all time if you debate him against LeBron James. You cannot put Derek Jeter on the same level as Michael Jordan in regards to how you talk about him. Derek Jeter was part of a great collective. He is not the sole reason why the New York Yankees of the late 90s and early 2000s were as good as they were. Now let me say this. I do believe that a documentary piece on Derek Jeter does need to be made. It does not need to be a six-part documentary series. He is not, in my opinion, worthy of the same treatment that Michael Jordan got. My opinion, a lot of people will disagree with me because a lot of people love Derek Jeter. And by the way, by all accounts, Derek Jeter was a below-average defensive shortstop. That's just my opinion. You can agree or disagree, but watching Derek Jeter play, he was not a great defensive shortstop. Okay, maybe he was a good defensive shortstop, but you would never put him on the same level as an Antrelton Simmons or a Brandon Crawford. Plain and simple. And with that, we are done here on our 10 Thursday Thoughts. If we have something for you tomorrow, 
We will bring it for you tomorrow. But until then, have a great rest of your day, enjoy the baseball, and we will talk to you next time. This has been a presentation of the Athletes Unfiltered Podcast Network recorded at the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. My name is Greg Moraz. Have a great rest of your day. We will talk to you next time.